the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hello. Before we say hello, um, <laughs> our, our, our co-hosts there, we're having a bit of difficulties. Yes. And we can hear each other yes, good. Here, okay. right. Go ahead and say hello. We don't need us anyway. <laughs> oh, we do need you. Our contraire. Anyway. Our country needs you. <laughs> yes. Well, today is Sunday, November the 13th. And welcome to Behind the Headlines, everyone. I am one of your hosts today. Elon Martin, and with me in the studio today, we have Harrison Kelly. Hi, everyone. And the good gentleman from across the pond, Neil Bradley. And Hi, Joe, everyone. Mr. Joe Quinn. Hello. Hello, hello. Well, it's over. Finally. It's just What's begun. Over? The nightmare? <laughs> the, the nightmare is over, but it's only just begun, as Harrison said. Well, of course, we're talking about the... 2016 U.S. presidential race, which has concluded... The Nightmare on K Street? Yeah, or C Street, depending on which sign yeah, you're looking at. Yeah, the Nightmare on T Street. Uh, the election has shocked many in the U.S. and around the world. It's made some unsettling reverberations everywhere. The election of Donald Trump to the highest office in the U.S., and some believe the highest station in the world has left his supporters in euphoria, but others in hysteria. So some of the things we're going to be talking about today is, well, it's the question, to what extent can Trump's rule change things for the better? Or will his election make things worse? And are there any signs to show that anything has really changed? Or... Are things now irrevocably different? Have we entered into some kind of new paradigm, some new, uh, some new world? Uh, anyway, well, just a I few like, thoughts. To I, would open like to with. I would like to suggest a one-minute silence for all the people who are severely triggered by Donald Trump getting elected. One, oh, one second. <laughs> okay, it's done. Done. Um, you know, the date was eleven nine. Which we, in in Europe we would put it the other way, nine eleven. Amazing, a date that will live in infamy. Mm. How many times has that uh, happened? U.S. elections? Not a lot. Not many. Not really any. Well, well, it depends how far you go back, but I couldn't find any. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um. The so, reverse nine eleven. Yeah. Well, reverse nine eleven. Yes, it's all there. That's all you need to know. It's the opposite of nine eleven. It's just they're busted wide open in your face, uh, or not. But anyway, we can't leave it at that. We have to actually explain things a bit more than just. Are any of us surprised that Trump won? I think mm-hmm. I asked last week, and the consensus was he had, was he had a good chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I'd always yes. I'd yes. always thought that he would he would win in one sense or another. For a while there, I thought that uh, that the Democrats would try to steal the election, but even then, I, like I wasn't quite convinced that they'd be able to do it. So I was I was kind of I, I wouldn't I was a bit surprised, but not very much. Um, I kind of flip flopped. Uh, a couple of days before the election, I was telling people definitely Trump's going to win, and then the night the night of the the vote uh, of the election of the of the vote, uh, the day of, I was kind of thinking, mm, I don't know, because there were still as the uh, you know as, as as the polls were being the dodgy polls were being announced, you know, that were skewed. Obviously, in hindsight. They're all giving it to Hillary, so I was like, "Oh well, at this late stage, you know." But it seemed that right down to the very wire, they were those Hillary people and the, the Hillary supporting media were all living in their echo chamber, and right up to the right, right, right up to the death, basically, they were still telling themselves it was all going to be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, just before we go any further, um, Kimpy in the chat room. Has said I have been threatened repeatedly. Uh, maybe you could let us know a bit more about that, Kimpy, unless you're talking in some kind of coded language. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Well, it seems well, that <clears throat> one, one distinction to be made here is, you know, when we say, "Who do we think is going to win the election?" Do we mean that uh, in in literal terms, or you know, because in one sense, the election is uh, announced. We know that elections don't indicate uh, a true reflection in many cases of what the will of the people are, whether that be through the electoral process or the popular vote. And um, so, you know, or would the results reflect something completely different? Um, it is interesting to think that uh, even though the popular vote officially goes towards Hillary Clinton, that it may in fact be the case that uh, given what we know of the way the elites have handled elections in past years, that uh, Donald Trump may have actually gotten a much greater uh, popular vote in addition to winning the Electoral College. Uh, Yeah, well, I kind of said as much um, last Friday What's yesterday, Sunday, Friday, I think it was, because I wrote a little article with Sunset about immediately after Trump won, and in the comments on that, for whatever reason, whatever discussion was going on, I said that I thought that he had won, that, that I didn't believe that the figures that they gave Hillary winning by a few hundred thousand votes, winning the popular vote, I just didn't, it just didn't sit right with me, especially when I was looking at the like, kind of breakdown that they had of of who voted, what demographics voted for who, and the surprise, some some surprising statistics there in terms of, uh, um, well, 70% of voters, almost 70% of voters are white, uh, you know, white Americans, and 58% of those voted for Trump. And then you had a majority of women voters that obviously are uh, partly part of that uh, voted for Trump. And when I saw that 
the majority of women voters, and that includes all women voters in the U.S. of whatever ethnicity, that a majority of them, a good majority of them voted for Trump, I thought to myself, here you have a guy, a man, who's not necessarily that personable or likable, and he, throughout the entire presidential campaign, the major theme that he was being attacked on by Hillary and co., was his sexism and his crude and crass um, behavior towards women. And it was not just allegations, there were tapes of his own words to that effect. So he he was effectively, I mean, people who called him a sexist and a misogynist, uh, you know, you couldn't really argue with that, uh, at least, you know, from an outsider's perspective. And, um, and given all of that, and the way he'd been portrayed in that way, and the way he is to a certain extent, to whatever extent, sexist and misogynistic. I wonder then, you have this guy, a guy like that running against a woman, and the majority of women in the United States, majority of voters, majority of women voters in the United States vote for him over her in that context. And then that brought the question of how much do people... Or how much do people have to hate Hillary Clinton? How much do those women have to hate Hillary Clinton, the majority of them, to do that? Uh, maybe I'm overplaying or overstating the extent to which allegations of sexism or misogyny against a man actually affects women, or that they don't necessarily take it personally and it doesn't affect them. But it just stuck out, stuck out for me that uh, that those that the majority of women still voted for for him, you know, and that he must uh, Hillary must have been really kind of roundly and widely hated by quite a lot of people in the U.S. And that all led me to kind of conclude that it's very unlikely that he or that she got more votes. Um. Well, you know, Joe. So. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, I'm seeing what has happened since the elections, uh, the protests, they're mainly fueled. I mean, it's not a lot of people, obviously. Uh, it's a certain demographic that voted for Hillary, the diehard Hillary supporters, and they're all quite young people, I think, in the protests in New York and Oregon or Seattle and California, California and places like that. Um, and the main kind of idea or motivation those people have for, for, for protesting on their, their their main issue that they're protesting about is that we won, i.e. Hillary won the popular vote. So it was kind of convenient that they had that because that's a pretty major uh, main part of their of their of their motivation to protest. They didn't have that. Mm, they could protest but they would be being very undemocratic but at least this way uh, with Hillary having uh, won the popular vote by whatever small margin, they can claim that uh, the election is effectively unfair because uh, a majority of voters voted for Hillary. So all of that conspired to make me think they probably rigged this election some way. And previously when people have thought about and talked about rigging elections, they think about how complex it would be and it kind of gets dismissed to a certain extent because it would be so complex. I mean, 
there's thousands and thousands of polling state or voting stations across the US. They some places use electronic voting, some places use uh, ball, paper ballots, some other places use kind of punch cards or something like that. And to go around and have people in all those places, you know, doing a little bit of vote rigging here and there because you don't want to do too much in any one place because you get exposed. You know, if you swing it too much in one area, you have to swing it just a little bit, steal little, little bits of votes or a few small number of votes from different places all across the country. That's very complex and hard to manage. And then, but then it occurred to us that well, they don't really have to do that. They can just let the vote go as it as it is. Normally, uh, legitimately, let people vote whatever way they want. But then you just have to be in the kind of central station, wherever that is, where the votes are communicated from all the different districts and counties and stuff to a central location. They send in their t- tallies and just need to have one or two people there to who collect those votes and come up with a total to um, misreport them. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not so hard. Well, and also, yeah, with, uh, there's other. Just really quick with the electronic voting, I mean, it's it's fairly easy to swing some uh, numbers of votes that way. Uh, we've yeah. seen that, so there's that too. Yeah, well, I couldn't speak to that because I don't know how many, you know, yeah, how many exactly. places around the U.S. actually use electronic machines and stuff. So. Mm-hmm. There's other anecdotal evidence that um, the results don't reflect what happened. In, in the run-up to election day, tens of thousands were still turning up for Trump rallies, whereas Hillary had to cancel events because she could get less than 10 mm-hmm. people. Um, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a hefty majority for Trump. Um, he said he was winning by that much, and I tend to believe him. He also mm-hmm. said he'd win the Hispanic vote. He might not have won it, but it's probably a lot yeah, more in his favour. Yeah, he, reporting. He apparently got quite not very much of the Hispanic vote officially. He only got twenty twenty nine percent, but um, I think he he probably got more of those using the same kind of uh, analysis of the situation uh, as with the women vote. If women could bring it bring themselves to vote for Trump against Hillary, a woman, uh, and vote for Trump, the sexist. Uh, surely a lot of Hispanics could bring themselves to vote for Trump, the wall builder, mm-hmm. uh, despite, you know, despite that. Uh, because, as we say, uh, it seems that a lot of popular opinion, a large percentage, a uh, large majority of popular opinion in the U.S. was very anti-establishment and anti-Hillary Clinton for that reason, because she obviously represents the establishment. You have, you know, for forever. I mean, for for some people, it's been forever. For millennials, although you know, a decent number of millennials actually that age group up to thirty five also voted for Trump. I think it was maybe not a majority, but close to it. Um, but for most people, all they've ever seen from uh, in presidential elections is establishment candidates. These polished fairly long-term um, political animals who all you know, know the system, have been trained in a certain sense to be politicians, to be diplomatic, to use, to use political speech, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all they've ever had, you know? I mean, there's really not a lot of difference between any of them when you see them talk. They both say nice things and say it in a nice way. They don't... Uh, 
they're both they're all well you know well educated uh, eloquent in their speech etc etc they all wear nice suits they they're all, politically correct they're polished etc they don't use any crass or rude or any any kind of words they talk a different language than the average person in the street let's say a majority of people in the US uh, you can and, even see that, that in, the, in the Republican primaries when, like with Jeb Bush and and yeah. Jay Cruz and Marco Rubio I mean you and you see Trump on stage with all of them and he sticks out like a sore thumb like Jeb Bush right. it was just it, it was like watching like a Hillary Clinton like there's not much difference between them in the way they present themselves the way they mm-hmm. just look and speak they're very like they're and fake looking well here's the yeah, thing yeah the word they use and the kind of rhetoric they use and the kind of vague promises to do this and do that and they're trying to sound like they know what they're talking about and that they're going to do lots of good things but at the same time they're not really saying anything that means to means means much to the average person in the street so this is what Americans and people in Western democracies in general have had for a very long time. That's all they know in terms of politics. And it seems to have lasted. It was, you know, it was acceptable uh, for, for, for all the previous uh, presidential elections in the US. But it seems now, for some reason, and we can talk about that in a minute, but it seems at this point, uh, for, for some reason, people were not willing to go with that option anymore or obviously more importantly they were given the outsider option for kind of the first time maybe you could go back to Reagan to see a previous outsider but that's still quite a long time ago and they've been given they, they were given this uh, outsider in Donald Trump somebody who's not a politician not you know spoke in a different language and uh, he obviously just resonated when they had the opportunity to pick the the non-politician for president, they jumped at it, uh, I think, in a fairly large majority. There, there were some interesting comments on our Scott uh, Sot discussion forum recently, and um, one commentator said that it's very clear that Donald Trump is authentic, uh, and what he was getting at was that you have a feeling that whatever Trump says, even if it's ridiculous, uh, even if it's inflammatory, um, but even if it's correct, and, and this is what counts the most, uh, he really believes it. He's behind it. Uh, he has conviction. There is a emotional kind of investment in and 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 force behind his um, his convictions about what's wrong with the country and how things are being run. And you never you never get that sense from someone like a robotic. Uh, kind of plastic, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton or or Barack Obama. Um, these are, you know, you used the term political animals a, a few moments ago, Joe, and I think that is a, a an excellent description of what these people are. Uh, they exist solely to uh, fulfill their own uh, ambition and uh, accruing of power and wealth and status among the elite. And um, if if anything, it's clear that Trump doesn't need or want any of those uh, aspirations or goals for himself. Uh, he, he is a businessman, uh, and yes, he plays that up quite a lot, but the bottom line would seem to be that he has projected uh, his kind of uh, perception of the U.S. as a, as a business. Um, which mm-hmm. which may not be far off, 
and that uh, makes a lot of sense people yeah it, you know it, it's not even being conducted well on a minimal level as a business as a country that has yeah. uh people who need to be served uh minimally mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. and he, he really tapped into the feelings of a great many people well, when he said that yeah I think that uh, I've got a slightly different take on him. Um, like I think he's authentic, but not authentic in the way that most people think about authentic. Because I think he does. He just as in just as any politician, he'll say things just to get a vote. He'll he'll you know say one thing one day and then change his mind the next day. And I think maybe a better way to put it is that he's actually he's an authentic politician in the sense that in. That all the other politicians who lie, they're just basically reading a script, and they have no, um, no drive, no, no kind of sincere mm. desire to Person actually be a personal. politician. Go ahead. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I was going to say no personal investment in it because right. they're already there, right? Right. Uh, but he was actually fighting for something that uh, was new to him. Like he, you know, it's like a little kid. He really wants to be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. wants to be an astronaut uh, or he's like a guy who wants to be an astronaut his lifelong dream to be an astronaut he's never <laughs> been on the space shuttle before he's never gone to the moon and he's standing in a competition against a veteran astronaut who's gone to the moon several times uh, so he's going to be a lot more enthused about it a lot more you know invested in it and that kind of thing but he's also I don't know what Trump uh, is like I'm not going to comment on who he is or what he wants or what he plans to do or whatever but because I don't know Oh, I can hypothesize, but yeah, I don't know. There's a big element uh, of him that's a dark horse. I don't mean that in a negative sense necessarily. Well, he's an outsider who's never been in politics before. Doesn't know anything about politics. Doesn't know doesn't know a lot oh, about insider Washington. Doesn't know anything circles. about it. But he doesn't know a lot about it because he's not inside, right? Maybe there's some. He, he's I'm clean. not sure. Well, maybe he knows a little bit because obviously there's a, there's a nexus or a connection there between kind of Washington. And he has been a major sponsor to both parties on two Street. or three decades. Yeah, but I'm talking about actually inside government and how government works. I think he's also sponsored particular laws. You know, I want this law passed. Can you get it from me, Senator? Yeah, he's the kind of guy who was making, who was paying. Right, but I mean inside. <laughs> he, okay, go on. I mean finish. inside government and yeah. actually fulfilling the, the, the roles of president and what you can and can't do. I don't think he has necessarily, certainly he doesn't have any first-hand understanding of what that's like, you know. And certainly he probably doesn't know uh, what it's like for someone like him to be president, right? Because if he knows, if he's leaned anything over, over the years that he's been around, he's only leaned it uh, in the context of there being establishment politicians in the White House. And what they do and what he might have learned from what they do is, you know... Hmm. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he knows a little bit, but I'm sure there's a lot of things he's going to find out. Let me throw this in the mix here. It strikes me, based on some of his earlier interviews, talk shows, on TV, whatever, that he has thought about this before, about running, but mm -hmm. that he's waited for whatever the right time is. Maybe. He decided to go now. Yeah, well, he, the right time is because... He wasn't just in it for the power that he would have struck out earlier. Well, he's what doing he, so at age seventy. Yeah, but maybe he isn't the power, and he didn't do, he didn't strike it earlier or try to get it earlier because he realized he wouldn't have got it earlier, and he picked this particular time because he knows it's the best time to ensure success. 
mm-hmm. that means that could mean that he still wants the power. Yeah. Another thing about him being political or not, um, I, I use the term dark horse partly because there is a kind of I, there is a kind of political animal to him because I mean he's asked in one of the debates, "Will you or will you not accept?" the uh, result of the elections. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'll keep you in suspense. He's, he's, he's playing, he's playing a game here where he's, he's keeping cards close to his chest. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is highly political. And someone suggests, well, that's a business strategy. You know, if you're in business, you don't, you know, kind of a bit of a poker deal going on. You want to get the best deal possible. So you don't reveal upfront what it is exactly you want. Because then if you're, opponent knows what it is you want, he'll up his price, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he does the same thing with all of the all of the different policies he pr- proposes or promises that he makes, because he says so many things and so many contradictory things that no one knows for sure which of them he's serious about. So, so his, uh, well, his supporters and his opponents are mm. both left kind of uh, dazed because... They're not sure which direction he's actually going to go with any of these things. Oh, was that just a campaign promise that he's going to, you know, turn his back on and as soon as he gets into office, or is that something he's serious about? They can't really strategize based on anything he says because they'll they'll be coming up with constant contradictory scenarios and they'll have no idea what direction he's actually going to go in. And we've we've seen this already right. just in the last few days. Like, um, well, it's hard to know even now what he will he will actually do when he becomes a president in, in January, but already there are signs that, you know, he's kind of backpedaling on Obamacare just in the sense of, you know, he's taking a more reasonable position than like just the 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 kind of talking point that he was getting across during the debates and everything like that. Okay, well, no, we're actually going to keep a couple, uh, you know, provisions from Ob- Obamacare and, until we get the new system in place. And he's saying that, mm. I mean, with the, you know, sending Hillary to jail, he's like, oh, well, you know, I haven't really thought about it that much. We've got more important things to deal with, like taxes and the economy and ISIS. But then again, on Syria, he's act- he's totally stayed to his original script on Syria and Russia. So that's interesting. If you see what he's remained consistent on, what he's kind of at least toned down um, immediately after winning the election, it's uh, it- it's just kind of fascinating to watch and wonder what the heck's going on and what he's actually going to do. Well, on that subject, um, about a year ago, he went on uh, MSNBC Morning Joe, uh, which is a pretty popular, if if banal, kind of morning talk show. And um, he said some very interesting things. He said, um, right now you have things going on. You have so-called people that you think are on our side. They're not reporting it. They're not talking about it. And in some cases, they're involved with it. I mean, look, I'll give you an example. Some of our so-called allies that we work with and that we protect militarily, they are sending massive amounts of money to ISIS and to al-Qaeda and to others. So uh, the, the anchor kind of presses him further. Who, you know, are you talking about Saudi Arabia? And uh, Trump says, you know who it is. What do I have to bring it up for? You know who it is. Mm. And he presses him a little further. And then Trump finally says, um, you know, okay, any other countries besides Saudi Arabia? And Trump responds. He says, I'm not going to say it, but I have a lot of relationships with people. But there are, and you know that. And everybody knows that. Nobody 
says it. Nobody's talking about it. Uh, you know, he says some of our so-called allies that we work with and that we do protect militarily, they are sending massive amounts of money to ISIS and to Al-Qaeda and to others. And the clear implication here, uh, if you know anything about what's going on, is that Israel uh, is one of those countries. And um, people were quick to pick that up when they when they heard Trump say this on the on the program. Uh, but then, not a month later, Trump goes on to speak at an APAC conference and do his little, you know, song and dance about uh, having mm-hmm. a, a strong, you know, U.S.-Israeli, you know, connection. So, uh, right. yeah, he, so, he, he knows things, and I think he's testing the waters in some areas. And uh, yeah. I think he's just maybe at this time trying to feel out where he can go with certain issues and, and how far. Yeah, he was the first world leader. He was the first world leader to come out and fly out and meet him. Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but the thing is, I, I think the reason that just came back to what we we're saying earlier, the reason that Trump won is because he's a businessman and a businessman uh, carries an awful lot more weight with the average American um, than does a politician, uh, particularly Hillary, uh, but obviously others who are, many of whom are seen as uh, as just being corrupt. They're feathering their own nests uh, in, in crooked, by crooked means, effectively. They're using their their public office to to kind of uh, to, to peddle influence and to and to get rich and for a lot of people that's seen as a corrupt way of getting rich, uh, whereas Donald Trump is seen as being someone who uh, is rich and therefore admirable, uh, and he did it in a legitimate way, which is through business. So he's a good businessman, he's someone to look up to, and he, for, for two reasons: he's a businessman and he's a successful businessman. And you could uh, you would imagine that. The skills that he has acquired or developed over the years uh, uh, working in business are fairly applicable and useful to uh, working inside uh, Washington. Because I think, as we were saying earlier on as well, uh, you know, Washington and the U.S. government is kind of largely a business. You know, uh, it's slightly unusual type of business, but it's actually really just a business. It's about uh, making money. And of course, you know, in business, people are looking out for their own interests and trying to make a fast buck and that kind of stuff. But uh, politicians aren't meant to do that, right? They're not meant to uh, use their public office to to do that. But you can and should do that in in business. So I I think the skills that he has uh, learned from from his his previous job are, are transferable to and maybe even make him actually more suited and more capable a president, for example, than, than someone who doesn't have his background. Because what uh, skills do other politicians, establishment politicians who get, you know, pushed, put forward as a Democratic or Republican uh, nominee and then run for election in the past, the, these people who have uh, run and become president, uh, what skills do they bring other than uh, a knowledge of how the system works and how to let make use the system to work for them. Effect, effectively, they're just, you know, it's, all they know is cronyism, effectively. The Bushes and the Obamas and the Clintons and all the rest, all they know 
since they're career politicians and they were brought up in, in rich families and stuff, all they know is is that kind of uh, exploitation of the political system for their own personal wealth. Uh, that doesn't uh, allow for any change. When you put someone like that into a, an already corrupt system that functions that way, you're just bringing uh, another kind of, uh, you know, kind of bringing another smaller mafia boss or a new mafia boss in who's just going to run the same kind of corrupt system. Um, uh, so that's the only skills they bring. And if that corrupt mafia system, that is Washington, is not serving the people, well, then you need someone with a different set of skills to come in to actually make the system work for. And I think to a certain extent, I can imagine that Trump being a businessman and you know trying to um, make best use of uh, resources and you know uh, good business practices, basically. Um, he will probably see an awful lot of issues, an awful lot of uh, problems uh, and things that would probably horrify him and shock him and disgust him about, not necessarily from a moral standpoint, but from the point of view of just being horrified at how the the US government effectively, as a corporation, and the country as a corporation, is being run. There's wastefulness everywhere across the board. And of course, uh, that's not a problem for people like Obama or Hillary or the Bushes or whoever else um, because they have no responsibility. Uh, they don't feel any responsibility to make good use of that money because it's it's not their money. They're not going to lose. They're actually gaining. They're stealing from the public purse and they're misusing money from the public purse. It's for, for, for career politicians who become president who, and who work in the U.S. government, uh, all that money is free money. It's not their money. Free money. There's a crap load of it. It's the combined total of taxpayers, uh, uh, taxpayers, taxpayers' dollars that come into the into the government, and they just they have no sense of responsibility towards that money, towards using it properly, because it's not theirs. It's not their business, and they're going to be only, only going to be here for four years. So they they just get as much of it as possible and just throw it around and don't care. They're extremely wasteful with it and have no responsibility towards it. So uh, the difference with Trump is what I'm saying is that when Trump comes in, he comes in with a very different sense of fiscal responsibility because he, he's coming into it from the sense of uh, having to have, having had a, a very personal, uh, a sense of personal responsibility towards proper fiscal management, the proper use of money, whoever's money it is. And if he comes into the White House with the idea that U.S. taxpayers' dollars that go to fund and are meant to be used by the government, if he comes in with the attitude that, or, or starts to feel or f- that that money, that he's responsible for that money in the same way he was responsible for uh, making sure his business ran well, well, then it may be a very good thing. He'll be much more responsible and he may start, you know, stopping leaks of cash. Maybe he may he could end up reforming the, the kind of military and the ridiculous expenses and on the wastefulness uh, among, in, the, in the U.S. military and maybe in other areas of, of the country. He may start looking at all that and he'll, I'd say those will be the first things that will jump out at him as a businessman. Mm-hmm. They're probably jumped out at him all over, you know, for the past 20, 30 years since he's been in business. He's seen those things first. As soon as he sees a waste of money, he, he like freaks out. Because it's his money, right? So if he has the same attitude to government, then he's gone. And we know the the, the the wastefulness of the U.S. government. He's going to be freaking out all over the place when he sees money basically going down the drain. Mm-hmm. Well, 
let's talk about that a minute because we have an entire, um, well, we at least have a percentage of diehard Clintonites who have absolutely no clue about any of what you just said, Joe. They have no mm. clue that Bill Clinton in the, in the mid-90s repealed Glass-Steagall, uh, which mm -hmm. was very important um, Wall Street regulation, uh, which was supposed to prevent the collusion between investment banks and, and a certain type of uh, stock investment. And what that allowed uh, Wall Street and the U.S. government to do is create these incredible bubbles uh, and manipulations and uh, is largely responsible for the events of 2008 and the economic recession we had then. So we have all of these things. We have uh, Hillary Clinton's track record. Uh, really, she's the racist, not, not Trump, uh, of, of Wall Street collusion, of running mm -hmm. up deficits a la, um, a la Obama. Uh, and yet... Uh, all of this is being projected onto Trump, and and none of this seems to be acknowledged about their hero Hillary Clinton, um, who is the other side of the the Bill Clinton, you know, coin. Um, so wh where is this? How is it so possible that you have so many who are so ignorant of of Hillary Clinton's own kind of desire to create better conditions for, for Main Street or for the average person in the U.S. Uh, where is this bubble coming media. from? The media. I, I don't think those people are... They're, they're not out there for Hillary. Mm -hmm. They're out there because they bought the propaganda that Trump was the next Hitler. Yeah. It's ridiculous. If you ask them, they're, they're shaken. I mean, they're being interviewed on TV and they're, they can't even give a logical, coherent answer. And people are holding that up as, you see, evidence for they don't really know what they're doing. They're partly in that emotional reaction right now because they're so stunned because they bought the lie that this is it. Tomorrow there will be gas chambers. It's here. It's here and now. They right. really think it's happening. Those are, so they're these bleeding, not bleeding heart, but these liberal kind of, you know, um, social justice types, you know, phony social justice, you know, uh, um, types who are out in the streets and it's ridiculous that they are freaking out in the way they're freaking out and protesting now because of Trump, and they have bought that line that he's, you know, he's a he's a he's a Hitler, he's a sexist, he's racist, all this kind of stuff. I mean, these people are obviously the most ignorant, or the most impressionable, the most easily foolable in society, and they should be called out on it because those people are a danger. You know, when they don't have the ability to simply understand that. You know that the media actually will, in, during a presidential campaign, the you know Hillary's camp would have played up the, the the demonization or would have demonized him in that way, and that it's not so simple, and the stuff that Trump said was part of his campaign, so it's not so simple. These people can't even go there. All they saw was Hitler and a threat to my kind of uh, gender identity or whatever it is they're campaigning for and stuff, and and they freak out and they can't even think, they can't even put two and two together. You know, so those people. Who, who are acting that way, I, I think should be criticized, not just because, you know, to make fun of them, but just for the sake of it, but because they're, they need to be given a wake up call. They need to be held up uh, to ridicule for their own good and for the good of the country because those people are dangerous, you know? Anybody could come along and, and, and 
put one over on those people and have them marching in lockstep to whatever agenda they, a person wanted, you know. But I just wanted to answer a question here from, uh, sort of a question um, from Thor on the last thing we were saying there about uh, about Trump as a businessman. He said, um, but uh, a businessman would not mind, um, where did it go now? But a businessman, a businessman, businessman would not mind the economic hitman strategy. I understood he thought they should have taken the oil of Iraq instead of just leaving it all, including twenty three hundred Humvees for ISIS. Well, yeah, but that's a that's a business uh, strategy, and uh, that's they should have done that. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not just fan the Iraq war and like that, but when you go into a country, ostensibly and and obviously. You know, officially it was uh, at this stage. Officially, it was to secure Iraqi oil for you know for the U.S. and its allies, etc. But uh, they turned the country into a into a mess, and uh, you know they ruined the country, create massive instability in the country to the point that they can't even secure the oil. That's complete factlessness. That's not good. They're not. That's not good business business strategy. If you're going to go and invade a country to secure the oil, well, then make sure that you secure the goddamn oil and don't turn the country into a into a nightmare, you know, failed state where any bunch of nut jobs can come in and take over and and create havoc to the point that you don't even get the oil. What a bunch of idiots! Like, and and the economic hitman business is not good. He, I think, Trump understands that the economic hitman business, that which which is effectively going around the world and kind of like manipulating, threatening countries uh, to, you know, to open up the countries to. To to for, for Western corporations uh, and saddling them with debt and all this kind of stuff. I think that strategy has been proven to be a failed strategy, especially in the hands of the kind of people that have been in power in the U.S. up until now, because they they're they're just you know they're creative destructionists or they're creative they engage in cre- what they call creative destruction, where they think they can go in and just wreck somewhere and uh, grab what they can in the moment and then leave and everything will be fine or something or we'll work it out afterwards. Look what they did to Libya. I mean, what was the point of Libya? Uh, they haven't had, if, if it was oil, they haven't, they don't have any access to Libyan oil at this point because the country's still in ruins. So, I mean, none of those are good business strategies. So, uh, at the very least, you would think that, uh, that Trump would bring a kind of more savvy and effective business profile to the US government as a corporation and what it does at home and overseas and make it profitable. And I mean, you don't make profits for anybody yourself or anybody else around the world by just destroying stuff and walking away. Mm-hmm. Well, there was one Russian. Well, we've got a caller, but just I want to make one point before yeah. we get to the caller. There was one Russian uh, commentator that uh, that I read that made the point that with a Trump win, the United States has the potential to become a normal country. And what they meant by that is that the current system is not normal in the sense that uh, the United States is this outlier in the sense of a hegemonic, you know, um, superpower that lords it over the rest of the world. With what they see is that a Trump presidency will bring the United States to the status of just any other country in the sense that, well, what do other countries do when they make deals with each other, economic deals? They try to get the best deal for themselves, but they don't... um, like they don't like what you're saying. They don't totally destroy the other, uh, the other country or the other person right. they're dealing with, to the point where that other country can't make deals. So of course, if Trump try right. if Trump does things, he's going to try to get the best deal for 
for the United States. He described that about his deals with China. He says, you know, I make tons of deals with China and I beat them. You know, I get the best deals in China. Well, that's what he's going to try to do. But even that, like, yeah. even, even if you don't like that, it's a whole lot better than the existing system because it's just that that's the way that business runs. Right. He, and the and Chinese he, are going to do the same thing. Right. And just to make, just to kind of underline the point, a major, one of the major reasons that these, like the Obamas and the and the Bushes and the Clintons and stuff, do what they do in terms of foreign policy, i.e., destroy countries. Part of their their business profile actually, I think, involves them consciously destroying uh, the country, not and obviously not to exploit or get the benefit of the resources, steal the resources of that country. Which, if you're going to do that, you would obviously have to make make sure the country was a functional country so that it could still produce the resources that you were stealing, right? Their agenda was not, these people are so nuts that their main agenda was to actually, in, 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 I, or maybe one of their main agendas, or as it turned out, their plan B, let's say, at the very least, was that in invading and destroying other countries, they were actually not looting that country. They were looting the, the, the U.S. public purse. They were stealing money from U.S. taxpayers. Because that's actually what happened. All of the big companies, the big uh, kind of defense contractors, uh, obviously through war get a lot of money. So that's a major benefit. You just have to have the war. And the more ex- destruction of a country through bombs, etc., and bullets, the more money these defense co- contractors get back at home. Who are your friends? You're the friends of politicians. But on top of that, there are other countries, uh, other companies, corporations like Halliburton, etc., who got billions and billions of dollars. Uh, of dollars of U.S. taxpayers' dollars from supposedly rebuilding the countries that the U.S. military destroyed. Now, of course, they didn't actually rebuild any of those countries. Like in Iraq, they didn't. But they still got billions of dollars from U.S. taxpayers to supposedly rebuild these countries that they didn't do. Now, there's documentaries and stuff and, and videos on on the web that you can see about soldiers who were there who who, who described the the that that process of just fleecing the U.S. taxpayer in Iraq, uh, but by having um, you know massive waste, basically they 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 would uh, they, the Halliburton would need like um, they would be charging soldiers. I think it was hundred dollars per load of laundry. And that came from U.S. taxpayers. Uh, Halliburton would be, for example, doing U.S. soldiers' laundry, charging them $100 per load of laundry, uh, meals, all the kind of uh, things that are needed to maintain a military presence in a country. All of the, in, like we're talking about cars, trucks, uh, SUVs, pickup trucks, uh, tankers and everything. And they would go around just, just if they got, if they got, for example, if a truck got a, a punctured tire or a tire blew, they would set fire to the truck. And then build the government for another one. Uh, and so this was just a fleecing of the American people through the process of invading other countries and justifying the fleecing of the American people by we have to rebuild this country and we're going to use US taxpayer dollars to do it, but we're not actually going to rebuild anything in the country. We're just going to give all those taxpayer dollars, American taxpayer dollars, to American corporations. So we want to take that call, Harrison? Yeah, He's still there. The yep. So, caller, you're on the line. Who do we have with us today? Yeah, this is Stephen in uh, Orlando. Hi, Stephen. How's it going? Stephen, yeah. hi. What do you think? 
Uh, well, I'm, I'm very, I'm very heartened by it. And, um, I remember calling you guys about a year ago and, um, expressing like, uh, kind of quasi support for Trump. And, um, I didn't vote and I, I made the, the principal decision. I would not vote anymore until I actually have something to vote for. But, um, there's a couple of things in my, and, um, in my own lived experience that, that, that are, I think that are pertinent when, when it comes to analyzing what's going on. I voted for the first time for Clinton in 92. But what I've watched happen um, in the course of like a couple of decades here is everything gets worse. If you're a worker, everything just gets incrementally worse. It's it's harder to get work right now. And then when I listen to liberals um, put down me because I, my in my work, um, I've been harmed by illegal immigration. I've been immensely harmed by it to the point to where. I can't afford to get a house. I'm 52. Um, I can't afford to ever buy a house. I don't have savings in the bank. And um, my work is undercut by Ill- illegal immigrants in my industry. And if I point it out, what I've noticed from the liberals is absolutely no sympathy, not one whit of sympathy for my plight. But they are, they're going to they're gonna turn it around like it, it's, it happens over and over. You're a racist. They're going to they're going to chastise they're going to chastise me for being a racist and act like and they would rather see the illegal immigrant get the work than me and act like I don't deserve it. When I bust my ass, I do hard, hot, dangerous work and I'm disrespected by these liberals that are more concerned to flood the United States with even more people when we can't even produce enough jobs in the United States. So I'm not a, you know, I'm not a racist. That's, I've been to- that's, that's, that's because of their bizarre, bizarre multicultural ideology. Those people are pushing an ideology that has no basis in the reality of the facts and the ground or sound economic yeah. policy. They don't care about any of that. It's not about a real actual ideology they have in terms of, it's not, it's not a, it's not grounded in reality. It's not, it doesn't actually have the interest of the country at its heart. What it has at its heart is their, the stuff in their head, their abstract kind of flowery, kind of humanitarian, multicultural ideology. And that's what they scream and cry about. And it has nothing to do with what actually happens in the country. And you know what else? And like I said, I have friends that are, I was raised by African Americans. I've got gay and lesbian clients that I'm very friendly with. I have a lot of affection for part of the reason I didn't vote is um, I, I value my friendships with these people more than my, my voting. I, I didn't see it. It was more that I just despised and thought that Hillary Clinton was dangerous as hell. than I liked Trump in any way. And I, again, I didn't vote, but when you listen to these people, these liberals, you know, like like they're 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 putting down um, the red states, the people in these these communities as being hicks, as being haters. I mean, it's so incredibly insulting and reductive on how they describe the people that voted for Trump. It churns it churns my stomach, and um, I'm a I'm a left communist. I'm. Uh, it's not that I've. It's not that I have changed and I've gone further to the right. 
No, I would have voted for Bernie. I would have went door to door if it was between Bernie and Trump. Um, and not that I thought that Bernie was so great, but I think that Bernie's general ethics and his direction of what he wants was something worth voting for. The Democratic Party has went goes slowly, slowly to the right to the point to where it, it, it made the perfect storm where somebody like Trump could come in and claim it to be a Republican when um, constitutionally he's not a Republican, he's not a Democrat, he's for Trump, right? And um, But the Democratic Party has failed so miserably. Um, look at the Obamacare. Um, it's a disaster. It's a total disaster. Now, not only am I basically bankrupt right now, um, and I told you guys but when I became a whistleblower, you know, a few years back um, from the Sierra Club, nobody had my back in these liberal environmental organizations when I was reporting a documented and documenting a crime. They didn't want me to they wanted me to shut up. And like in, in, in the face of this, again, I didn't become right wing. I'm not. I'm, I am the I'm the same left progressive commie commie guy that I was years back. You know, I've always been. But it's the fact that, that the party apparatus has shifted further to the right. And then we got and it. And it was and I want you guys comment on this. It was almost as though with Hillary and Obama that the liberals were so for, for decades, they've been castigated as being the mommy party. You know, oh, you're going to like coddle dictators. Oh, you're going to coddle our enemies that with Hillary being a hawk. It was as though finally the liberals got somebody that the Republicans couldn't outflank them and, 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 um, mm -hmm. and claim that the Democrats were anti-military because they had become like the imperialists. So it was though the Democratic Party, you know, after decades of being castigated as being the pussy party, you know, being the limp-wristed the limp pussy party, now with mm -hmm. Clinton, they were going to get a champion for, for U.S. warmongering. And um, to the degree to where she was out screeching about Putin and Russia, hating on Russia, when Donald Trump was like, no, we're going to make we're going to make deals with Russia. Russia can be our friends, he was basically saying. And he mm. was hated upon by Hillary for just saying that, hey, we need to work with Russia. I mean, mm. this this every bit, the loss of Hillary Clinton is on in the victory of Donald Trump is on the freaking total lame leadership in the commentary class, mm -hmm. the intellectual class that are tied to the Democratic Party. They're just they're totally disgusting. And they have um, the way they and, and, you know, one of my primary things that I focused on and I hammered home to some of these liberals and they looked at me like I had three eyes. I just pointed up his Hillary Clinton's history of blood and, and participating in murder and destruction of families, communities, and countries. And they looked at me like I had three freaking eyes for daring to even mention that. Mm. Yeah. I think you're on the, on the money there, uh, Steve. Um... Stephen, you must take heart, though, that the majority of at least those who voted, they're with you in the sense yeah. that, yeah, they don't like Hillary either. They see it. You know, when, look, when, when I would have conversations with everyday men in the street, see, I'm in Florida. I met, I met some Latinos that voted for Trump. 
And then I, mm. when, when I would mention to some of these right wing conservative types that supported Trump, I said, man, can you man, do you understand what we're doing in Syria? They got it. Mm-hmm. They got it. Mm. We are supporting the terrorists in Syria. Mm. They got it. The people on the right conservative, not all of them, but um, a lot of them got it. But on the liberal left, they just wanted they, you know what? You know, I have this thing where, like, I just imagine if I'm like a family in Syria in a little town and then we're going to be overrun by terrorists. I mean, I'm automatically on their side, because if I was in their position, I would want somebody in the United States saying, hey, this isn't right. And but on the mm-hmm. liberal side, there was just they, they didn't even want to acknowledge Hillary Clinton's criminality and imperialism and the way what her policies are doing to destroy people. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. they would try to spin it around like Trump is is worse than Hillary. You know, Trump has a lot of flaws. But one thing I, I um, in, in the one thing I th- when I look at Trump, I a I don't see him as a hater of any particular group. He's motivated mm-hmm. to be the winner to be the chief. But I don't see him animated by just hate toward a particular group. Um, so anyway, I am heartened that um, a lot of the United States got it. I'm not a right winger. I'm not a Republican. We're going to I want to if um, if Trump doesn't make peace with Russia and starts escalating things, man, I'm going to he's going to he's going to get my ire just as much as Hillary Clinton did. Mm-hmm. There's no I'm not going to give him any slack in that regard. Um, and, uh, and the, the last thing I want to say before I hang up is that, um, I kind of have the impression that there's a certain momentum that exists in our society with the military industrial complex, with, uh, the big banks, um, our financial policies, the Ponzi schemes that exist. I kind of have the impression, my sense is that there's going to be a su- substantial economic collapse that Trump being president cannot avert. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be only then when things collapse to a degree where people are actually hungry, can we actually do stuff like develop political movements where we can have substantive change. And um, we, we wake up, we start getting to know our neighbors and then we organize because if it's not, if the little people aren't organized, and behind political movements, you're going to just get the kind of crap that we've been having for decades. And um, the reason that we've been able to like go so far um, so badly for so long is that we are the we food is cheap. Entertainment's cheap. Bread and circuses are cheap. But when people are hungry, then you're going to see people people become smarter and develop movements. And as long mm-hmm. as we don't World War Three in a nuclear holocaust, we can deal with whatever happens in the wake of the financial collapse that I see coming. But anyway, I just thank you for letting me voice my opinions, and um, I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of y'all's show. All right, well, thanks, thanks as always, Stephen. I just want right, to comment on something that that Stephen said, which um, points to a strong distinction between a lot of Trump and Clinton supporters and what we're seeing now in the form of protests in part. And that is, Stephen said that the, you know, a lot of these people understand what's going on in Syria. Uh, and I, I think part of that is that based on their experience of being shafted, disenfranchised by 
the U.S. government for so long, there is this kind of an intimate uh, understanding of of suffering because of elites that many of the uh, liberal snowflake uh, quote unquote progressive types in the U.S. have no experience of. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they are living in this kind of social media um, uh, entertainment um, bubble. Bubble. Uh, this this echo chamber of ideas that has little to no bearing in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and just on another point that that Stephen made, uh, which I which I think is uh, rather crucial in in what we can sort of expect to see going forward, uh, is that conditions. The, the economic infrastructure of the U.S. at this time uh, is so dysfunctional that, you know, you have guys like David Stockman who have been, um, you know, working in government and, and, and are now commentators stating that anything that Trump tries to do, even if it's in the right direction, even if he has the, uh, the, the backing of enough politicians, uh, it's stillborn. It's it's like trying to plant a seed in uh, in infertile soil. Um, mm. So this this can very easily be used to be turned against Trump. Uh, so that you know, for those who don't understand yeah. just how bad things are here, uh, they can blame him for it. Basically, is what you're saying. Easily blame him for it. Uh, his supporters can see this as a failing on his part. Uh, obviously, people who already hate him are going to uh, put the blame on him for not turning the situation around. Uh, so that that's a very kind of sad reality that we're looking at in a in the next few years um, in the Trump presidency. One of the ironies in this situation is that Trump actually needs to be quite a fascistic slash tyrannical leader to help the U.S. That's how bad it is. And I think it just speaks to the psychology of what's going on here. The the mantra that he is such comes from the minds of the elites who who like things just fine as they are, you see. Mm-hmm. Or oh, we don't want a tyrant. We don't want to. This has always been the way in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Oh, so-and-so taking too much power. He's a tyrant. He's mm-hmm. a dictator. It's always been the way. And it's all, nearly always directed as someone who's like sick of the corruption and tries to actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. Trump actually needs to be such. It needs to come to a point where he proposes a law and Congress goes, eh, no. And then he goes, right, I'm signing it in anyway. He's lucky in that executive orders were made normal by Obama. But he would take a little bit more than just his signature. He would need to actually enforce it um, in yeah. the sense of making sure that deputies lower down and throughout the country actually execute. Um just on, on a point Stephen was making, I mean, people need to understand at this point that there is no left and right anymore. Uh, the, the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, in terms of the Washington or the establishment, are, are exactly the same. There is no difference whatsoever. Uh, when you have someone like Hillary, supposedly from the left, who is a warmonger, uh, you understand that, uh, and then before her, before her and Obama, uh, you had the warmongers of uh, warmongering of Bush. There's no difference between those people whatsoever anymore. Um, and there's and, another point there, Joe, that I think is really important because some people make the distinction between uh, foreign policy and domestic policy. And 
you know, if if you are this imperialist so-called warmonger, uh, if you're if you're increasing the power of the national security state, uh, it's not divorced from policies that happen domestically. Uh, everything is in service to uh, intervention, whether you call it humanitarian intervention or whatever else. Uh, it, it's all of a piece. It's all in support of uh, the military-industrial complex. It's all in support of the the, the banks that that support the system that uh, thinks it's going to survive on a drive to um, economic intervention and more. Uh, so, and we've seen this, the, the most perfect two examples were the, the Bush administration and, and Barack Obama's administration. Right. Those, yeah, I mean, you have this left and right ideology that's, you know, left is this, or Democrats are this, and Republicans are this. There's no difference whatsoever. It's like the, the, the ideology of those people, those people use ideologies at this point. They use ideologies and they, they just put on the hat of a certain, you know, I'll be Democrat and you can be a Republican, but we're both serving the same agenda. The kind of analogy I was using uh, the other night was what ideology does, ha- does, a, does a lion have when it's eyeing up an impala? What's the lion's ideology? And what's the lion's ideology when it's uh, digging its teeth into the neck of the impala? Is it a lefty? Is it right? Is it progressive? Is it conservative? Isolationist, maybe? What is it? What would you call that? And when you have one lion on the, on the impala's neck and you have another lion on the, on the impala's backside, sinking its teeth into its backside, what's the difference between those, those two ideologies? Is that the Republicans are at the neck and the Democrats are at the butt? The one at the back is leading from behind. Right, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, obviously, the point I'm making here is that it's a predatorial ideology. That is their ideology, is predatorial against everybody and everything. And they prey most particularly on the people that are closest to them and they have, that they have greatest access to, which is the American people. Of course, they, they spare some for other people around the world where they go around preying on them. And, and this is... You can take this literally because obviously people around the world in particular are being slaughtered by these people. So the analogy of a lion feasting on the flesh of an impala is not that far from reality here. It's not that much of a metaphor. And of course, many people in the U.S. are dying as a result of the policies of these predators as well. That's what predators do. They kill, they feast on the flesh, the energy, whatever, of other people, and those other people die. That's what's happening. Uh, in Syria, uh, just getting on, on, on Stephen's point about Syria, it's interesting that the uh, Hillary led the kind of uh, was played her part in the role of supporting the terrorists in Syria, uh, and of course this was Hillary supporters. These snowflake liberal types uh, were fully behind that because this was America helping the freedom loving people, the lovely Arabi Syrian people of an wonderful exotic culture who wanted to free themselves from the tyranny of the evil Assad and America and Hillary were going to help those people directly by helping the Free Syrian Army. Free Syrian Army Army, my backside, obviously, as everybody listening to the show knows, it's absolutely ridiculous. This is a horde of people, of, of mercenaries in a country trying to overthrow the democratically elected government of Bashar al-Assad. That's the bottom line. I mean, and, and it's amazing to see there. Even until this, un, until this very day, they're still, when they talk about Syria and they interview anybody on it, they're like, yeah, but Assad's a bad guy and what do we do? We're trying to help those people. And the only person that I, that I 
of any note, let's say, and he's of note now, obviously, Donald Trump, who actually challenged the liberal media as Bill O'Reilly and Fox News and Alex Jones call them. And it's a freaking cold day in hell, obviously, has arrived when I'm uh, <laughs> echoing the sentiments of someone like Bill O'Reilly or Fox <laughs> News. If we're in a new reality, people, when I'm agreeing with these people, they call, them, call it the liberal media, and they definitely are the liberal media, whatever that means. It's a particular variety of predatorial kind of intent that is cloaked in a kind of lefty humanitarian kind of, uh, you know, garb or something. But the only person of note who actually challenged this liberal media who was pushing this repeatedly over and over again across the board, across the full spectrum, pushing this idea of Assad's a bad man, he's a brutal dictator, how are we going to help the poor Syrian free army? You know, we should be... Uh, uh, the only person who challenged them on that, that I've seen of note was Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Maybe a year ago or something, or not even a year ago, where he said, well, "Hang on a minute, we don't even know. Who, we don't know who these people are. Mm-hmm. You call them the free Army. I don't know who they are. We're giving them uh, weapons and money and stuff. And th- and you know, okay, I don't. And he said Assad's not maybe not a good guy or whatever. But you know, I have no. He, he I think he said something like he's no interest in. And we we shouldn't be throwing getting rid of Assad. That's not our business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of." The thing is about Trump is it's just these same people who are supporting the free Syrian army under Hillary who are just terrorists and these people who don't have the brain power to just go the simple go to the simple logical conclusion that these are not freedom fighters. They are trying to overthrow a democratically elected government with your help. These same Hillary supporters who support that are um currently pushing for the overthrow of the next president. They're the ones without the brain power to see through that. They're also the ones who don't have the brain power to see through Hillary. They're the all superficial and no substance people. They, you know, go with the Trump is an evil bad man. Assad's an evil dictator. Mm-hmm. Gaddafi's an evil dictator. Putin. Iraq's an evil dictator. Uh, Saddam's an evil leader, uh, Gaddafi, Assad, Putin's a tyrant. That's all you need to tell those people and they're up in arms and they'll support whoever says that and they'll free the poor repressed people, people being repressed by the evil dictator, free them quickly. That's, you just, you can eat, fool them that easily just by saying, brutal dictator. And they're, they've got your back immediately. They're out in the streets, they're protesting and they want to free all the people, all the poor people of the world. The same people bought the bullshit of Trump's a Hitler. Trump's a racist. Trump's a sexist. While Hillary, this fascist, slathering, bloody... Watch it, Joe. ...mall (laughs) with teeth behind a pantsuit and groomed hair, they can't see through that. So so they see the, the fake evil persona of Trump and they go, oh my God, he's Hitler, when he's not. And he's actually trying... He wants to do something good for the country. And they look at Hillary who's in a nice, you know, is this facade of a pantsuit and nice hair, and she's this predator behind it, and they can't even see through it. Even when they have the facts of her actions and her words uh, available to them. Mm-hmm. So what, what reality do these people live in? I mean, what are their brains for? They all need to go and get lobotomies or donate their brains to science because they clearly do not need them. Mm. You don't need a fully functioning brain to think and act the way these people think and act. And these are the intelligentsia. These are the, the chattering classes. 
the ones who do the most talking know the least. <laughs> and it's not just in the US. I mean, the reaction everywhere is uh, shock, pure shock. How did this happen? Uh, European, European leaders are, are putting up editorials pleading with Trump you know, please don't forget NATO. Uh, Jen Stoltenberg, the leader of NATO, had a Trump um, editorial in The Guardian basically pleading with the incoming president to, you know, people not leave us behind. Don't, don't, for, don't, don't forget forsake us. us. And because what's going on is the chattering classes in across the West are pooping their pants because they're like, are we next? Are we finished too? Because without Big Brother, uh, and France and Germany next year have elections. <laughs> I mean, with the far right parties already, already being castigated, but already feeling that their chances of winning are good, especially in France. Uh, we got a call, Harrison. Yep. Caller, you're on the line. Who do we have with us? Hey, Jason Best here in Cincinnati. Good to hear right, your Jason. old voices. Me too. Uh, not, not, not sure how much of a delay we're on here, but I uh, just wanted to chime in real quick with a point about how there is no left and right anymore. I, I couldn't agree anymore with what you guys are saying. Um, and I just had a quick story to kind of back that up. Um, a few months ago, before the election occurred, I convinced a small group of acquaintances uh, – you know, I, I'm pushing 40. Most of these folks were in their mid 20s to watch together the debate of 1992 between Bill Clinton and George H. W. Bush, and mm -hmm. their minds their minds were blown uh, by the end of it. They couldn't stop watching because Bill Clinton was espousing the same sort of things um, that. You know, he he even said, make America great again. He didn't use the word great, uh, but a lot of the lines you saw coming from Donald Trump and a lot of the arguments you see today, uh, he was up there for an hour and a half espousing all of the same lines, uh, political ideologies, things of that nature. Uh, whereas On immigration had, as well, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you had Hillary or you had George H.W. Bush, on the other hand, promoting some of the same philosophies that we heard Hillary Clinton promoting with Syria and the Middle East. And, and at one point, one of the, the uh, younger kids said, is this bizarro world? Is this real? Because they couldn't remember that election whatsoever. And even mm. I was just a young teenager at that point in time. Uh, and the other point I've, I've tried to make to some folks uh, before the election was that uh, people don't realize the Clinton family and the Trump family have been friends for decades. Um, Bill used to golf with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Hillary took every photo op she could. Uh, there's tons of them out there, never missed one. So I, I think that uh, the point that there is no left and right as people are brainwashed to see it these days is is absolutely correct and apt. Just wanted to add those stories. Yeah, and it's been it's been true for, like you said, for at least, what, almost 30 years now, if not if not longer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's obviously just one big example, but we can see yeah. how the left has become the right. The right has become the left. Um, you know, you could even take an Overton window approach into this a little bit as we see what's happening now as a result of Tuesday. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, there's more recent example in both domestic and foreign policy. Obviously, I mean, the, 
was I think it was a Boston Boston Globe wrote an article and was quoting a, a professor from Tufts University talking about the kind of deep state or something. And what he was talking about was the fact that under from two years ago, I think, uh, under Obama, uh, foreign policy had continued on without any change. In fact, he had ramped it up. The same foreign policy of the eight years under Bush. Right? There's a Democrat foreign policy had not changed at all uh, from the Republican foreign policy. And then, of course, you have Obamacare, which I don't know how many people know, but it's kind of out there. That it's not really Obamacare. It was tabled and, and, and kind of formulated by Mitt Romney. It's Romney care. And what's Romney? He's a Republican. So exactly. in both domestic and foreign policy, these people are on the same page. These are simply names. Democrat, Republican are names and nothing else. Even if you take it to a much simpler level, uh, the Obama phone, which uh, it has been coined over the last 10 years, was actually an invention of uh, the George W. Bush era. Uh, that, that's where that right. tax program came for the free phones. But suddenly, due to the manipulation of the media, it became the Obama phone and a symbol to rile people up against when it had nothing to do with Obama at any point in time. Mm hmm. Interesting. One, one other interesting, just quick point I wanted to make. Um, I made sure. a prediction to some friends of mine a few months ago um, that it felt like something had shifted. Uh, my initial prediction a year prior, uh, I actually made a bet with somebody last November, was that Hillary would win. It would be the closest election ever, but that she would lose the popular vote. And about three or four months ago, it, it felt like something had shifted in the political landscape at large. And I said, you know, it almost feels like the powers that be are going to go ahead and support the bringing in of Donald Trump. Uh, I have no real concrete evidence, but I just started seeing so many odd coincidences like Hillary collapsing on 9-11, uh, the, the bombing in, in Chelsea, New York City, just a week later in, in little mm. Weird events like that that started making me think, you know, it almost makes me wonder if he doesn't have the support of whatever supposed shadow government, things of that nature that may be pulling more strings than people realize. So not sure if there's any credence to that, but just wanted to toss that out there. Thank you all so much for, for the great show and for sharing the good viewpoints. I appreciate right. you taking my call. Thanks, Jason. All right, Jason. Thanks, Thanks for Jason. Call again. Good talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, we. I probably need to leave it open. I mean, the the thing of, the thing about the nature of a great republic like the U.S. is that it, it it's it's structurally based on having key patrician families who are all basically of the same party, of the same mindset. They're the optimates. Always have been. Well, there's some variation over decades. One family rises to prominence, another one falls back. There, there are shifts, of course, but you basically end up with a group that collectively you might call the deep state or the optimate families. Now, what changes now and then and what seems to have happened here is that you have an unusual case where one of these members of these patrician families comes in as a populist. Uh, is he sincere? Is he not? We'll find out. But it, it's as old as Rome, this basic status hmm. quo. Mm -hmm. that, that's the underlying socio-biological reality of, in fact, of power in great, in large empires. And in fact, if you look back at Rome in the time of Caesar, it's almost like, you know, those uh, kind of patrician families had been, had, had come to power and were kind of ruling the roost and were kind of uh, making things difficult for the people of Rome, uh, Roman citizens. And, uh, and then along came Caesar 
because he saw that this was not good. He wanted to do something to change it up. So Trump is our <laughs> dystopian 21st century Caesar. Oh, my God. Is that how bad it's got? Uh, he's Trump basically in that role, yes. But, yeah, but given the context down. he's in it, yes, given the context he's in, the guy playing Caesar slash JFK this time around is oh. a reality TV star, people. <laughs> so that's as, that's as good as it gets. I'm sorry. Take what you can get, you know. Well, um, Yeah, go ahead, Harshan. Yeah, I just wanted to make a, a point that I've been thinking about for the last few days. Because, uh, and it gets back to this idea, the, the whole uh, mainstream propaganda line that Trump is the new Hitler. And so I've been seeing this all over the place on social media, of course, and in the news. And it, it well, what struck me is that it's just, just how wrong it is, but not for the reasons that people think. Because I think if you look at, like, if you look at, the, at Trump's campaign over the, over the last year or two, it's, there, there are elements that, uh, that you can, you know, you can make a, uh, a comparison, the whole demagogic kind of um, rallying calls around these uh, hot button issues. And so you can, on the one hand, you can kind of see where people are coming from. But then you, when you look at the bigger context, that's really where it, uh, it breaks down. And this is, I think, where ponderology comes in so handy is looking at how, how this actually happens. Because what people are really terrified of, even if they're not thinking about it in these terms, is a so-called totalitarian government or a pathocracy. Because that's essentially mm. what, what Nazi Germany was. But they're missing the entire historical context and how that actually develops. Because if you read Ponderology, it's, it's, a, it's a natural process. In, well, natural as, as far as uh, you know, human nature goes and psychopathology. But what happens mm. is... It, it's only the process of many years of development and things that can seem unconnected when you when you when you aren't looking for it. So a pathocracy only develops after decades of previous um, developments. And in, if you look at the United States and the direction the United States has been in, what you see is that this that very process, what what Lobachevsky calls ponderogenesis, has been care has been carrying itself out within the establishment. And that's what we've been talking about these last this last half hour is this no difference between the left and the right is that that very establishment mm -hmm. has is the is the social uh, group that has been ponderized or it, that's where ponderogenesis is taking place where that group mm -hmm. that that ideology that uh, well so-called competing ideologies have morphed into one and have become total caricatures of what they presume uh, or present themselves as representing. Claim to be. Claim to be, exactly. So you've got what we actually have in the United States is a development of a pathocracy within the establishment, within the existing um, Republican and Democratic alliance. And for the past eight years, that has been a Democratic one. And Hillary Clinton was and is a continuation of that pathocratic, um, just utterly psychopathological and sick system. So what you have right now with trump coming into power let's let's give all these people the benefit benefit of the doubt and let's say that trump really is this power hungry hitler type character well even if he is he's starting fresh he's starting anew and that means that if he were to ever um want or even like uh uh well yeah if he were to want to even do this it would take him decades before he could actually do it because or let's say a decade at the minimum because that's the time it takes for this process to actually work itself out. It's not like mm -hmm. a dictator just comes in 
and overnight. automatically you yeah overnight you've got a, t- a, t- a totalitarian system now that can happen but when that done, does happen is usually when it's it's been uh, like an externally um, basically when the country has been invaded um, and that can be not necessarily a, a full military invasion but like a um, kind of like this color revolution kind of thing where the entire political uh, leadership structure is just hollowed out and replaced by cronies for the existing pathocratic element. Now that's not what's going mm-hmm. on with Trump. Like Trump's coming yeah. in without a team. He he would have to mm-hmm. totally co-opt the existing establishment structure, and that's not going to be easy because they all hate him. So it's right. just it's just totally unrealistic when you look at it from the actual from the perspective right. of the actual dynamics um, that lead to this kind of thing happening. Right. Well, the, but the flip side again. Of that, let's talk about. Go ahead, I was going to say, again, let's talk about the kind of uh, the type of people and the ideology adhered to by the people who are out protesting against Trump. Mm-hmm. They're a relatively small minor, a small percentage of the of the voting population. Most of them appear to be quite young people, and they um, they don't seem to have the capacity or the brain power, or whatever it is, to understand that simple thing that you just said, that simple uh, bit of uh, thought-produced logic, that Trump cannot come in and just create a totalitarian government within a short period of time, and he can't even do it in four years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and he, and like the other things we're saying, where they they believe all of the hype, you know, that the, 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 Liberal media, the, West, the, the U.S. media kind of presented, uh, trumped up, I suppose, about him throughout the campaign, Hitler, all this kind of stuff. They just sucked all of that up. And these are the people who are now out in the streets thinking that there's going to be a totalitarian uh, state and he's not my president and uh, love, Trump, love Trump's hate and blah, blah, blah. And these are the people, supposedly, that are going to lead the revolution. Yeah. These are the people that... You know, and people have suggested on on the web, commentators and stuff have said, "Is this like a Soros-funded uh, color revolution in the USA to try and get rid of Trump?" Well, maybe. Well, the, but the thing maybe is, an, it maybe it may be an attempt. <laughs> but I'm sorry to have to tell uh, the revolutionary uh, leaders, but you're not working with the best material there in yeah. terms of a revolution. You're talking about special snowflakes <coughs> who. The militias and the cops and everyone else with guns are on the other side. Exactly. You're talking about special snowflakes who um, who suffer microaggressions when someone looks at them wrong or calls them wrong, use the wrong use the wrong pronoun about them, maybe or 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 whatever. They're very sensitive people, obviously, and they're not the kind of people who are going to lock and load and go out and take back the government. You know. Mm-hmm. So, if any deep state or any parties. Uh, within the U.S. government who don't like Trump because he's an outsider want to use these people to overthrow him, you've got a bit of a problem. The only way, but if they wanted to have just have a revolution in the U.S., like a color revolution just to sow chaos and set fire to the U.S., the best way to do that would be to get rid of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, because then you would have a real revolution with real revolutionaries and like we were saying we think probably you know 60 to 70 percent of the population actually voted for trump well you're going to get a bunch of those people and the people who voted for trump are the ones probably mostly the ones who have the guns because of course these because of course these special snowflakes they're all anti anti 
anti gun. They they gun control. they're the one they're the ones that uh, Alex Jones hates. So they don't have the guns. Uh, if they want to have a revolution, you can get rid of Trump, and then you'll have a real revolution on your hands. But and that's not one you're going to be able to control. It's not going to be a stage managed revolution because you're talking about people with guns who know how to use them and are genuinely very angry. You know, they're not and they're not angry because of some kind of multicultural ideology. They're angry because they see clearly that they that uh, that the president or the person they voted for was deposed in some way. You know. And the the ironic thing about both scenarios you just presented is that those are the two ways where um, where America could actually lead to a pathocracy or a like full blown totalitarianism, because if the precious snowflakes were actually to be able to stage a revolution, then they would be putting into power the existing pathocratic system. They would be taking right. out Trump, and that would just give the establishment the excuse to put in their own system of government. Because I mean, since the 1980s, at least you've had the uh, you know, this insider group that has basically wanted martial law. They've wanted total control of the United States. It's just, you know, they either haven't uh, had the opportunity or it just hasn't, uh, you know, they just uh, um, haven't felt the need for it at that point. But that would be a great opportunity. On the other hand, if you, ha- if you, take, o- if you take out Trump, then there will be a real grassroots revolution from all of the right-wingers and all of the non-right-wingers. Yeah, with armed militias. And that could that could totally decapitate the you know the whole leadership of the united states and that creates the situation where all those positions are then opened up to to put in like the revolutionaries and that's Mm -hmm. that's a dangerous situation because that's that's the the real like revolutionary way of how pathocracies start right yeah Um, I, i would say that those are those are actually two probable scenarios or at least in my mind quite possible uh the other thing that well both scenarios. You're joking? <laughs> the snowflakes aren't going to have any kind of revolution. Oh no, no, I didn't. I didn't mean that. That um, that you would have this re- reaction or possible response uh, from those Trump supporters. Uh, yeah. You know, if, if something were to happen to him, for instance. But it, but uh, I don't think either of them are going to happen because the snowflakes are going to melt uh, pretty soon, and they're not going to depose Trump or assassinate him or something, because then they would have a real revolution on their hands, and there's nobody who wants that, because that is... They can't control that's that. That's not controlled, and they don't know where that's going, and they could all end up with their heads in the chopping block. Mm-hmm. Right. But There's but, no enthusiasm for that, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I wonder, though, if, um, if there would be some kind of uh, um, movement against Trump in a, in a serious way. Uh, by the deep state. Uh, and- well, who are they going to use? All they can do is assassinate him. Well, that's there's no, I- there's nobody, in, there's nobody in the USA that's going to rise up against Trump because sixty, seventy percent of the population of the voting population voted for him. The other, whatever it is, that of people that don't vote, what uh, like forty percent or something, or forty five percent that don't vote. Why didn't they vote? Because they're not even interested. So, uh, I don't see a scenario where they can get rid of Trump at this point. Uh, anyway. Either through you know, popular uprising because there's nobody nobody interested. Most people want him there, and the only other alternative then is to kind of either impeach him in some way with some some charges, which would be seen as a as a coup effectively, and you'd have trumped a revolution by militia on trumped up charges, or uh, you can assassinate him. But you have the same result where you have people up in arms. You you're lighting a powder keg there of of actual revolutionary fervor within the country, and you're going to have people. You know, it's not a controlled situation. So I'm afraid they're stuck with Trump for 
for for for the foreseeable future, and I think they're just going to try and control them from within to whatever extent they can. Mm-hmm. Yep, those are good points. In, uh, the, in the meantime, other things things will change elsewhere. There <clears throat> there are two elections coming up this week in Eastern Europe, and the favourites are pro-Putin, anti-EU candidates, and one of them is an EU country. So that'll be two EU countries at least inside the EU that are pro-Putin, anti-Brussels. Mm. Well, and then from there, things can just snowball. Right. Bulgaria. Just question. Bulgaria, Bulgaria and Mold- Moldova. Moldova, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, just to answer a question in the, in, the, in the chat room on the revolution, the other alternative was to, to not have the uh, electoral, voter, electoral college choose, uh, you know, to choose Hillary. To not to get Republicans uh, on the nineteenth of December when they kind of ratify or ratify Trump to have somehow get Republicans not to do that and to basically cast their vote for Hillary and Hillary gets to be president. But in that case, you still have the same people are up in arms. I mean, there there's a lot of pissed off people who there's a lot of pissed off people in the USA who voted for Trump because they're very angry. Do not like Hillary. Do not like Obama or the established politicians. If you, at this point or within the next month or two, undo that and get rid of the person they chose because they're very angry against the against the state and against the the state's candidate, well, that anger's still there, and you're again you're lighting a lighting a fuse. Mm. You know, it's kind of similar to what's going on in Britain. There are all these rumors and talks and legal efforts to block the result of Brexit. But I think Theresa May and the current Tory government have accepted there's no way we're overturning this. (laughs) We're all going to be facing the guillotine the next day. You know, (laughs) they let it go so far as an outlet for the liberals who are upset, but they get the message from these votes, I think. And I just want to say something about the news that's coming out. You know, uh, I think it's mainly coming from the from again the pro Hillary media, etc., that Trump is staffing his, you know, or proposing people. We don't know who he's proposing at this point, but the people gathering around him, a lot of them are kind of like the usual suspects and war hawks and people from the, you know, existing establishment. The thing is, first of all, you don't know who it's going to be, who he's going to pick in key positions, and it's the key positions that are important. Uh, and secondly, you have to understand that him walking in there at this point, at this early stage, and and starting his first year in, in the White House, he cannot just walk in there and go, okay, it's a draining shake- the swamp, starting it's a, now. It's a shake-up, people. They're all out of here because he'd make so many enemies, and he needs these people who are the kind of backroom people who've been there, unelected officials who are experts in this policy, experts. He needs those people. The point, and, and even from a from a strategy point of view, you don't go in and piss everybody off. You go in and you make friends and you bide your time and you gather. You make inf- deals. In, exactly. You gather, gather information and, and you know, make friends and you build your power effectively to the, so that at a certain point you can then make decisions to change things. Mm-hmm. You don't do it from the very beginning. People are idealists and a bit, a bit, uh, of kind of fanciful notions and unrealistic notions about uh, that Trump should come in and say, okay, get to work on that wall, uh, Obamacare, gone. Uh, okay, all you neocons, out. Uh, who else? <clears throat> who else don't I like? Who are all the evil people? Kick them all out on their ears. Put them in, put them in the stocks. Let's all throw, throw you know, to, rotten tomatoes at them. Yeah, you know, in an ideal world, but 
that's not the world we live in. And he has to be, if he has any intention of changing things, he has to be very strategic about it. So don't, you know, get triggered like the liberals just because he's not draining the swamp all at once. Um, it took Putin 15 years. Yeah. People. So 15 years. Who? Uh, he's not there yet. Brent wanted us to mention something about the Standing Rock business. Yeah. Do you want to call in, Brent? Did you have something to say about that? Oh, yeah. There he is. Uh, looks like he's right there. Okay, well, standing rock. Dakota Access Pipeline. Oh, yeah. Hey, Brent, you on the line? Fast. Yeah, hey, how's it going? Hey, good. Uh, you getting any feedback, or is the mic okay? No, that sounds good. That's good. Um, yeah, no, uh, I just I thought we could switch gears a little bit and um, talk about what's happening in Standing Rock, because um, it kind of uh, plays into... Um, a little bit also what happened with uh, the election. So it doesn't seem like right now, it doesn't seem like Donald Trump will oppose um, the building of the pipeline uh, through the, um, the tribe's land. Um, but we're going to have to wait and see. Um, but just uh, yesterday, uh, some 500 water protectors were um, walking down a road uh, outside one of the, uh, the construction sites and um, a man driving a concrete truck um, was basically trying to, like, you know, just trying to drive on this road, and people were sort of blocking his path. And he was basically, like, brandishing a gun, screaming. He fired seven shots into the air, um, ran over, uh, I think he ran over two people, like, hit their, their got their feet caught in, in their, uh, under the, the tires. So the situation there is still very tense, um, and it seems like it's really fallen off of the radar ever since uh, Trump won. Um, so, like, uh, it looks like Obama, you know, he kind of said we need to wait and see on this pipeline and see where it goes. He's kind of holding out, um, you know, because it's basically his last, you know, few weeks in office here. But... Um, they, there was a worry that he was going to approve it uh, tomorrow, Monday. But now um, his administration is saying that no decision has still been made. Um, what's clear is that the company uh, behind the pipeline does not have all the necessary permits to continue to build through um, this, this tribe's land. And the big concern is that you know, if they do go through, they're, they're going to build this pipeline under a lake um, and under the Missouri River. And where the pipeline crosses, it's directly north of where the tribe's uh, reservation is, and that's their source of drinking water. So if anything were to happen there, you know, their drinking water and everybody downstream would be um, totally messed up. And these pipelines, they have uh, a tendency to leak or or burst frequently. So it's not like this is a, you know, an invalid concern. Um. And now these uh, the police out there are quite militarized. We've seen pictures and video of these guys in, in Humvees. Basically, they're you know armed to the teeth. They have assault rifles. They've been spraying pepper spray nonstop. Um, they've arrested a couple hundred people. Um, it's it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, what's good thing that's coming out that I'm finding in the news that is that a lot of people have as the protests have been continued um, people have been contacting these banks that are behind energy transfer partners which is the, the corporation that's kind of mainly pushing to build the, the pipeline 
And the banks are now starting to get a little wary um, about whether or not their investment is a wise choice. So <clears throat> the first one was this, a uh, Norway's largest bank um, is considering pulling out its investment in the project, which stands to be about 10% of the total they need to, to finish the project. Mm-hmm. So it's a good thing. And it's showing that these, these protests are working. Um, it's just, it, it strikes me that, you know, we have all these people and all these kids that have gotten out into the streets over Donald Trump's win, but he's not, you know, I'm, I'm wondering you know, where, where are all these people and, you know, things like, you know, the, the DAPL pipeline and, you know, wars in Syria, you know, where was all that, you know, anger and, and resentment, you know, it's just, it really kind of drives me up a wall. Those are uh, yeah. questions, Brent. Uh, you know, I, you might find this interesting. I work for a company that, um, that uh, is owned by a, a tribe of, of Indians. And I got a call not too long ago by um, a member of another tribe who is trying to uh, gather um, some people to go up there uh, or, or west of us to South Dakota or North Dakota uh, to protest. So there, there is this kind of groundswell movement going on. Um, it, it, it seems. Can like someone many... explain to me? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I want to interrupt. Sorry, Alan, I want to interrupt. There must be like twenty thousand miles of pipeline in the U.S. Can someone explain why this particular pipeline is causing such a reaction? Because it's running running under Indian reservation land, under rivers. It's running under which two rivers? Levanti going under two rivers. River. And, and uh, River. right now, the, the uh, there's like a lake too that that it's right. supposed to go under. And, but know, surely there are other pipelines that go on similar. It's lines. environmentalism. Here's the problem. I mean, there must be hundreds of. Not to burst anybody's environmentalist pro-Indian bubble, but the reason this pipeline is being built right now, it's been tabled and thought about and planned for quite a long time, 10 years almost. But it's only in the past, I think in the past year, that it's uh, got the kind of go-ahead, and got the investment and, you know, the the, the green light was given to, to do it. And the reason that that is happening is because America, well, you can put it in these terms, America, the American government is pushing for energy independence, i.e., it doesn't need to rely as much, or in theory, ideally, and this includes fracking, uh, all the fracking going on, that it doesn't need to rely as much or at all on foreign sources of uh, natural gas and oil to fuel the American economy and keep everybody warm in the wintertime and make the cogs of industry keep turning. Uh, The reason it's happening is, I think, directly related to what's going on in the Middle East, and particularly in relation to what Russia has done. It's now into, you know, over a year that Russia has been involved in the Middle East, and the fact that there are plans for Syria, there are pipe dreams, literal pipe dreams for Syria and and that part of the Middle East um, uh, have gone awry, and there's much more insecurity, and the U.S.'s control over uh, natural energy resources in that region and in other regions around the world is being threatened every day more and more and has been for quite a while by Russia and China and other other actors. And th- this is uh, a push to kind of uh, secure more indigenous oil. 
and like I said, with fracking and gas for the American economy. So uh, while it might be a great environmental victory for people if it gets stopped, it's not going to be without repercussions uh, to yeah, someone. I think it, it definitely points to the need that we have as a country and as, as a world of alternative energy sources. And we've right. like the, the, uh, the whole war in Syria could be, you know, it's argued that, that you know, it's it's over. You know, they wanted to build. You know, the the regime change neoliberal camp really wanted to build their own pipeline, and mm-hmm. you know, Russia is talking with Syria about building a pipeline. So it's it's like if we take a step back, you know, it's like almost all the stuff is over fighting over resources. It's like these mm-hmm. uh, these psychopaths at the top, you know, really want to secure their position, and you know, like it's we can't go all the way to. Uh, they don't want to go all the way to free energy and you know i, I wouldn't be surprised right. if you know underground and private you know private hands that they do have some sort of you know free energy technology or technology that's not solely based on you know burning carbon-based fuels but mm-hmm. they're not gonna release that because then the price of energy will drop dramatically it's like all this money well, even renewable energies even renew- renewable energies, they, they're going to take a massive uh, cut in their control and their wealth uh, because they, they want to stick with gas and oil because that's what, what they control and uh, and they can make a lot of money out of it. If you start coming up with renewable energies, they, they tend to be things that people can kind of get quite freely and it, it provides energy independence, not just for a country, but for individuals. You're no longer controlled uh, and they can't keep making vast amounts of money from it and that's why they don't want to go there to renewable energies um, and that's obviously just a function of their massive greed and the longer they push this, uh, they keep this uh, the fossil fuel thing going, um, the harder they're going to fall. I mean to retool the world's the world's kind of um, industries uh, away from, and particularly in the US, which is a massive energy hog, uh, away from oil and gas would take a long time. You can imagine the restructuring of all of uh, the industry that would be needed to do that. Uh, and they're not willing to do that. They would have, have to start now or a long time before now to make it a, a relatively smooth transition. But what seems going to be happening, what seems to, what seems that's going to happen is uh, is that they're just going to let it go until they end up uh, some crisis happens and they no longer have access to those fossil fuels that they so desperately need and particularly in the US that is you know needs a vast amount of it I mean other European countries as well but the US uh, other European countries are, are obviously equally dependent on it but the US is is living high on the hog in a certain sense in, in terms of uh, its massive consumption of oil and gas far outstripping every other country in the world, more than Russia, China, and India combined, I think, uh, which which together have something like five times the U.S. population, but the U.S. consumes more oil than they do together. Uh, so when that happens, there's going to be a lot of uh, pain and suffering to, to, to go through, I mean, other people as well, obviously, but in the U.S., they seem, it seems like they're going to have a particularly bad fall. So I don't see, and, and of course, in that sense, you can see how environmentalists getting out there and protesting about a pipeline is not helping that situation. But the, the obvious conclusion you come to then is that it's going to collapse. The thing has to be, has to fall. Everything has to fall one way or another. And stopping a pipeline 
going through Indian Reservation land under the Missouri River is not going to uh, solve the problem. But I wonder, if, yeah. I wonder if that's actually the, the issue, uh, separate from how we feel about um, uh, you know, being pro-Indian. I mean, you know, it, it would destroy their water uh, supply. Um, God knows fracking has been um, tied to earthquake, uh, earthquakes as well. So um, you'd think that the energy industry in the U.S., could legitimately find alternative sources of oil without in, indulging in such kind of damaging practices as, as fracking. And there's something We're else... in the U.S.? Yeah. No. And, the, US, the U.S. is the biggest... Do you realize the U.S. is the biggest oil producer in the world? It produces most oil of any other country in the world? Mm-hmm. And uh, it all up. More, far, far more than Saudi Arabia more than Russia and they use all of it and they need the same amount again from other sources mm-hmm. and like those figures you should look at those figures the US with a population of 320 million people uses more oil than the population of China Russia and India combined which is about 2.5 billion people so it's actually about 8 or 9 times Per capita, effectively, they use eight or nine times the amount of oil than people in China, Russia, and India. And and that's not just because they're kind of relatively underdeveloped or whatever, blah, 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 and the U.S. is such a wonderful technological industrial country. They use far more than all the European countries as well, per capita. Yeah, so the U.S. needs to tighten its belt. And the U.S. needs to take, go on a diet. It's not sustainable. Yeah. And the only, only way they're trying to sustain it, they need to go on an oil diet, and the only way they can sustain it is to engage themselves in fracking and, and exploring for others, you know, desperately looking for other sources, like this Dakota oil pipeline is, is an example, a case in point, when, when they shouldn't have to do that at all if they would just, you know, kind of pull their horns in a little bit or, or, or take, a, take a bit of a pay cut, basically, uh, and stop living so high on the hog. It's totally unwarranted when you look at what other people around the world in developed countries uh, are able to get by on. And the biggest hog within that hog is the Pentagon. Well, there's the yeah. Pentagon, there's the military, and there's also the fact that the amount... The, the, I mean, it's just across the board is ridiculous. I mean, it's the amount of cars. It's the complete lack of any, in most of the U.S., of any viable or decent or sensible or rational or sane public transport system. Yeah, where and everybody Elon has Musk one or two cars, a, and they're, huh? Uh, Elon Musk proposed a while ago um, a, a kind of like a high-speed uh, train system, if you want to call it that. It's kind of like a, a maglev thing that they would put in a like a vacuum tube, and um, this was floating around the internet, like I think about a year ago or so, and um, that could be, you know, a very effective alternative to, you know shipping and, and flying things across the country and the world if it was then, pursued. That's still an, an idea, a prototype thing. There's, a, there's another system already available. It's been there for two decades. That's high-speed electric trains. China's crisscrossed with thousands of miles of bullet trains. The U.S. is like one functioning track somewhere in the Northeast. 
they, yeah. there, there's stuff there. You, you don't have to wait for you know super high tech to come down the pipeline. Right, it's yeah. already there. <laughs> but they won't do it because I mean, and they won't do it because of the oil companies that have from the very beginning were making vast profits from selling vast amounts of oil to the American people. And I, I don't know how do you change that. I mean, it's too late. I mean, to do anything about it now, these people aren't inclined to do it anyway. And even if they did, it would take a long time. And they're trying to do it. Uh, in a very precarious geopolitical, um, you know, uh, situation mm. around the world, where the U.S. and its access to oil is being is being threatened uh, more and more these days. I mean, it's just from that whole energy point of view, it's really yeah. a really big, big mess of a problem, and it doesn't look good. I mean, for uh, me talking about the Americans need to go on an oil diet, that's not going to happen without some serious pain, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing managed, that's, that, maybe. That's good about a Trump victory is that, you know, at least in terms of foreign policy, he seems to want to scale things back. You know, he doesn't want to be involved right. in all this foreign interventionism in which we have all this military equipment and, and ships and all these, you know, oil guzzling, you know, uh, like Humvees and, and stuff, you know, rolling around in the Middle East. And yeah. that could be that's a positive. That's one. That's one plank of what he needs to do, and the other key one is Wall Street. He needs to stop the flood of profits leaving Wall Street to re- be invested abroad to find the quickest, easiest, biggest returns in profit for those investments, and to start investing the damn money in the country. And just, and just to get, exactly, and just to get back to his 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 policy on the military. I mean, people don't don't realize the math that. The, the, the corruption and, and what the, uh, the the corruption at the heart of this pathocracy that's in, in the U.S. and what they're doing with the military. I mean, they're building, you know, ten what was it thirty billion dollar uh, U.S. aircraft carrier, a new one. They're building these literal ships that cost you know ten billion dollars or something, and a round of ammunition. Uh, around of these, uh, you know, projectiles that the ship fires cost eight hundred thousand uh, dollars. The point is that there's, I mean, since nine eleven, it's what five six trillion dollars that has gone to the military, to the defense, the defense budget. A lot of it used by the military. That money has gone to defense contractor corporations and it's American taxpayers' money. What do they do with it? It's one thing to give vast amounts of money like that from American taxpayers to defense corporations who build warships and warplanes, etc. As long as they go and actually make a profit overseas, right? Go and steal everybody else's resources. Make a profit, right? That's what Donald Trump's problem is, is with the whole situation. You're not making a freaking profit. He doesn't necessarily have a problem with intervention and bombing countries and stealing resources. But for God's sake, steal the effing resources. But that's not these people's agenda. Their agenda is to take American taxpayers' money and give it to corporations to build ships that do nothing, to build planes, warplanes that do nothing, that don't actually go and actually make a profit with your bombs. They just blow the bombs up, destroy countries, and that money from taxpayers' money that goes to those corporations, that's good enough. War is an end in itself for these corporations. And building ships is an end in itself. You don't have to make any profit with them because they're only concerned about themselves and fleecing the American taxpayer of $5 trillion to give it to corporations and let your roads fall apart, let your bridges fall apart and all sorts of other bad shit. Yeah. 
And like, I, I definitely understand why, you know, people are, are in the streets and they're protesting Donald Trump. You know, they, they don't like, you know, the things that he said. And there definitely has been this sort of, you know, racist, um, misogynist backlash. You know, now we're seeing that a lot of racists uh, have become emboldened by, you know, his win. And I don't necessarily think that that is a bad thing. Now, yes, it's terrible that people have to suffer, you know, harassment at the hands of racists. But, you know, these racists were racist before Donald Trump came along. And, you know, it's not like he converted a whole bunch of people overnight. And now we have this, you know, America's racism has become overt and it's out in the open. And now we can kind of see it and discuss it. And a lot of people, especially, you know, these kids that are in the streets, they were living in this bubble where like, oh, there's no racism. You know, everything's fine. You know, Obama's so great. And now that bubble has burst and cold, hard reality is crashing in on them. And I, I, I still maintain that that is a good thing. You know, they're, they're getting a shock. And I think that's what we need as a nation and as a people. You know, we needed mm. that shock. All right. And I also think it's a bit delusional for people actually to think that uh, because Trump got elected president, that racism and misogynism and other isms and phobias and things like that are going to increase because... Those people who might have a tendency towards that way of thinking uh, are happier now because their president got elected and their main cause of their anger. In fact, for a lot of people who aren't just, you know, genetically racist or something like that, which are very few, people who might have been complaining and, and, and tending towards racism and homophobia and all that kind of other things, they were doing that because they were angry, because they were angry about the 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 unrepresentative bunch of crooks that were in power under Bush and Obama and Clinton. But now yeah, that they've actually now that they've actually got some kind of uh, validation of their concerns and someone who's actually speaking to the concerns, surely they'll calm down a little bit and be a bit happier. They'll have more hope. And people who have more hope and are a bit happier tend not to be so angry and racist and homophobic and all those other things. Yeah, and that's the other thing that a lot of these these angry liberals forget is that you know, where does racism come from? You know, it comes from fear of terrorism, you know, right. all these immigrant and refugee crises. And right. neoliberalism is what caused that. You know, Hillary Clinton had a huge hand in pushing all these regime changes and not destabilizing mm -hmm. the world and fomenting terrorism. Mm -hmm. And the reaction of that among, you know, normal white people in America is to be afraid of, you know, brown people, to be afraid of Muslims, right. uh, stay right. away from anything know because they feel that their safety is being threatened right and there's a kind of a mind job as well done people you know it was mentioning this as well previously that uh you know they go around the world uh bombing since 9-11 they go around the world bombing um, and attacking muslim countries in this war on islamic terrorism and to do that to justify those wars they had to demonize muslim people in general to get uh the backing of the american people for those wars right yeah so there's there's a there's a, there's a an encouragement and an, an engendering of racism in the American people by uh, through the intention and the well, ap ap application of regime change in Muslim countries, and then mm. once they've created that in people, convinced them that Muslims are all terrorists, Hillary and her neoliberal camp all say you're not allowed to be racist, you're not allowed to say Islamic terrorism because that is offending the cultural or religious identity of Muslims in America. So it's like 
me going, you know, in, in a position of power, going up to a group of people and say, and scaring the crap out of them and defining the thing that is scary to them as Islamic terrorism and then turning around in the next breath and saying, don't you dare say the word Islamic terrorism. They're like, but, but, but I'm afraid of the Islamic terrorists because you told me to be afraid of Islamic I Didn't I just tell you not to say that? You're being racist. I mean, that's a mind <laughs> F of the tallest. It's, it's gaslighting. You know, it's, it's basically gaslighting on, on, a, on a national scale. And that's not, not the, that's not the only area where they've done that. Well, you guys, it's, uh, it's almost two o'clock, I think. Our show might be ending. So, uh. Oh my god. <laughs> so, so Joe can be quiet now. Excellent. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we're still good. I was worried that the show would automatically end, but it's, it's still going. So if we have any final thoughts, we can get them out. I think we've said absolutely final everything. Thoughts. <laughs> Major political earthquake. In I'm gonna DC. have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it does look big. I mean, go on, Brandon. No, I'm, I'm just saying. I've, I've been encouraging a lot of people on social media. A lot of people that I know, you know, they're in the gay community, and there's a lot of oh my god, this is the apocalypse. And I've kind of just mm. been trying to urge people to you know remain calm. You know, let's let's judge Trump by his actions in office. And let's see what happens. And, you know, if he starts to bring down, you know, if he starts erecting camps to, you know, house Muslims and, and doing all this horrible stuff, then let's get angry and let's protest that. You know, let's, let's focus our efforts on, you know, seeing what happens and, and doing what we can do as individuals to make things better. I mean, all this kicking and screaming, right. it's not doing any good. Well, that, Right. And stop being identified with particular kind of, myopic or fine focused political ideologies stop being so identified and invested in one particular ideology because if you if you think that's that's the only way it can be and that's the way it has to be then the chances are it's not going to be that way and when like you're going to have this reaction of all these kind of liberal types when trump come in you're just going to be devastated but that same traumatic reaction or, or effect can be had on anybody else who has you know, very specific ideas of how things are going to play out. You're putting too much faith in Trump that he's going to save the world. Or, the, I mean, you're setting yourself up for a shock in the future. So try to remain a little bit detached from it, while at the same time standing up for fundamental truths uh, uh, and kind of righteousness, uh, like truth and justice and uh, basic things like that, that 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 are universally true and and will always be true. Let go of the, you know, specific, convoluted, kind of deluded ideology that really only comes from these nut jobs in power. Mm -hmm. well, Brent, yeah, you and I think we can all we can all do that. You know, like a lot. There's a lot of ways that we can sort of quote unquote protest in our in our lives. Like uh, my boyfriend, for example, you know, he was a substitute school teacher, and he saw a clear incidence of Islamophobia. In, in his classroom, you know, a girl was getting harassed by another boy because she was Muslim and she might have um, had some, some association with the, this guy in this New Jersey uh, bomber or whatever. And she was being attacked for it. And he stood up and said, you know, that's not right. Like, you can't, you know, right. don't do it. And I think those kind of things that each of us can do as individuals are extremely powerful. You know, if you see something in your life that you can stand up and take a stand against, then do that. And, and that's so much more powerful than, you know, ranting on the internet or, or, you know, going out and protesting right. Trump in the streets. 
Like there, there are ways that we can impact the world in a positive way and you just have to look for them and, and the universe will, will certainly bring them along to you, especially given the volatile state of the world. Right. I just wanted to make one quick observation. Brent, you'd said you were kind of talking to, to some people in the, in the gay community. Well, one thing that I just, uh, thought was pretty funny lately is that Trump announced his list of, uh, his, um, transition executive team. And one of the guys on that list is Peter Thiel, the, uh, Palantir, you know, Facebook funder guy who happens to be homosexual. And so I, I did a little bit of, uh, searching on this and apparently there are LGBT, there's an LGBT magazine, a big one that has come out saying that, well, Thiel may be attracted to men, but because he, he supports Trump, he is not a gay man. Wow. What the hell? Yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of overreaction, uh, a lot of a lot of raw emotion without thinking. And again, I think it comes from the fact that people really weren't paying attention to kind of the objective state of the world before Trump won, and we're seeing the consequence of that shock reverberating through people who are living in a bubble. Right. Yeah, that's not the that's not a, a productive approach to take, you know. Um, the world isn't perfect, you know, and you can't have your perfect, you know, your version of reality. You can't impose it. You can't have your idealistic utopia. You got to work with what what's available, you know, uh, and what you can do, and not dream of changing this world or turning it into a. Yeah, I would just add yeah, that over the past, you know, week and and months following this election, and and just in recent days. You know, sometimes it feels like uh, one is scrambling a little bit to understand all of the developments that are going on. Um, and, and understanding things as objectively as possible, especially when there's so many variables and, and things occurring. Uh, sometimes it, you can see the patterns, but sometimes it takes a little work. And um, so I would just encourage everybody to keep working at it and uh, and talking to other people and... and uh, trying to get as many objective points of view as possible. And, and uh, like you were saying earlier, Joe, you know, viewing all this with non-attachment, uh, without a, an ideological uh, um, kind of glasses on, is what's mm-hmm. going to help us to, to, to kind of see what's actually happening, not what, we, not what we'd like to see happen or not what we're necessarily mm. being told that's happening. But... Uh, at least something a little closer to what's actually occurring. Right. Yeah, and it's it's kind of ironic in a way because a lot of these a lot of the liberal folks, you know, they're all super upset that they're not getting their way when, you know, you have a whole contingent of the American populace that they've just kind of dismissed and ignored and, you know, it's like, you know, we want our way and but you can't have your way and it's just you know, they don't see the dichotomy there. They, they, we have to, you know, include everyone in the conversation. And that's the only way we can move forward as a culture. You know, we have to d- be willing to hear the other side out and engage them. And, and without that, you know, you're no better than the people that you claim to be railing against. Right. You know, and, uh, yeah, just, just labeling, labeling people like that is, uh, like racist or homophobia. You just shut down the conversation and you back, you know, retreat into your camp and then you're, you're all ready for war, you know? So, 
people need to grow up a little bit and be a bit more mature and, and be able to not be so triggered or microaggressed by, uh, by, by name calling and that kind of thing and understand that people are angry and they're angry for a reason. Like we were saying earlier on, it's usually not vast majority of people aren't just angry because they're evil, racist, nut jobs or whatever. They're angry for a good reason. And, um, you can actually talk to people uh, with different views than you. And, uh, ultimately there's a commonality between everybody, which is that everybody wants just a, a quiet, decent, peaceful enough kind of life. We're probably not going to get it, but at least you can talk to your, fellow citizens on that level, you know, that's something everybody can agree on, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, on that note, uh, I think maybe it's time to bring this post-election, uh, tsunami episode analysis discussion to its conclusion. Um, we'd like to thank everybody for listening. Uh, our callers, Jason and Steven. Thanks. Our chatters. Uh, Brent, thanks for calling in today. And, no problem. Um, yeah. So stay tuned, everyone. There's lots of news coming in. Don't forget to check out SOT.net as often as possible. Uh, news is flying. Developments are, are changing every day, it seems. And uh, Health and Wellness Show next Friday, same bat time, same bat station. Uh, hopefully we'll be with you again next Sunday with... Uh, the news of the day. Uh, Joe, Neil, thank you. Harrison, any other Good to talk to you. No. Pleasure. I think that's it. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Take care, everyone. Things are crazy.